This morning, I want to continue what I began two weeks ago, talking about God's intent when he created us. Everything depends on us understanding God's purpose for humanity. He created us with something in mind, and our lives should be about discovering what that something is. But as we saw last week, one of the problems that we face is that we as human beings are part of a species that has lapsed into sin. So we can't consult our inner hearts to find what is best or what is good because what's in our hearts will point us in the wrong direction. It'll lead us not to fulfillment and to well-being, but to trouble and heartache and disappointment. So we look not within, but we look up. So that's where we've been. I've called it laying the groundwork for some future messages where we get into some controversial subjects that are very important for us to talk about. Now, this morning, I'm going to continue to lay the foundation. I have one other piece I have to discuss. There's a strategy I'm thinking if I stay on this track, Jesus might come before I get to the other stuff. So I'm taking my time. Now, the truth is I'm not taking my time. I'm trying to avoid being a moralistic scold. Because, see, that's what happens in the church. We talk about God's original creation. We talk about the fall. So it's all about sin, rebellion, our acting contrary to the will of God. But life's a little more complicated than that. We struggle not just with sin, but we struggle with our own weak and vulnerable humanity. It's all mixed up together. So that making a moral appraisal about any particular person's life, including our own, is not an easy matter. So I want to talk a little today about human vulnerability and human weakness from the scriptures, because it's important for us to understand that before we can rightly take up some of the topics that we need to discuss at church in subsequent weeks. So I want you to turn your mind back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit, and there are consequences. And we saw last week that one consequence is that Adam and Eve are alienated from one another, and they're alienated from God, and they're living with shame, shame they knew nothing about before they disobeyed God. But there's another aspect of the consequences. Genesis 3, 17, cursed is the ground because of you, says God. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so, not just Adam and Eve, but The earth itself has been affected by sin. 
Now we see that there's an alienation that runs not simply between people and between people and God, but between humanity and the earth itself. But notice, notice, the ground is cursed, but God makes the point. You've been taken from the ground. You're from, you were created from dust, and to dust you'll return. In other words, you're part of this created order. You're not somehow separate. We often think of human beings as souls or spirits that happen to dwell in a body. But that's not a biblical view. The biblical view is you are a body. You are a body. You are an animated body, and you can't separate your body from yourself. That's why as Christians, we don't hope for some bodiless eternal life. We hope for the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul picks up from this passage in Genesis 3 in Romans chapter 8, and I want you to see how he applies it. It's very interesting. Romans 8, verse 19, listen to these words. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says that the whole created world He's drawing on this passage in Genesis 3. The whole created world has been subjected to futility or frustration. The Greek word has the idea that creation had a certain purpose, but now it's unable to fulfill its purpose. It it can't reach its intended goal. That's the frustration that's involved. What God intended in the beginning is not what we see, but the creation itself says Paul, personifying the world, is groaning as a woman about to give birth to a child, groaning in the pains of childbirth in hope that it will find full redemption, which it will. God promises that he will create a new heavens and a new earth. All will be redeemed, okay? So Paul's talking about this created order is fallen. And then he says, not just the world, but we ourselves. We groan inwardly in ourselves as we wait for our full redemption. That is, what's he say? The redemption of what? Our bodies. Our bodies. God creates the world. The world is subjected to frustration. It doesn't achieve its intended purpose. It is subject to decay, says Paul. 
It doesn't work as God intended. And our bodies are part of the same creation, subject to the same limitations, the same frustrations. And we groan in ourselves. There's a kind of pain. We look for something better. And if we know Christ, there's a better out ahead of us, a redemption of our bodies. But in the meantime, we live with our bodies. And you know what? Our bodies our bodies drag us down. Ask someone who suffers from anxiety or depression. Ask them about that. More and more, scientists, having studied the human body, can see the genetic component in anxiety and depression. It's not as if it's, not as if it's caused by your DNA, but there are, certainly, there are certainly physiological aspects to it that have to be taken into consideration, that weren't understood at one time. But it is clear it's associated with the body. And what happens, what happens so often when someone's depressed, when somebody's anxious, they end up self-medicating. And then we say, oh, that's a sin. And no doubt it's a sin. But it's not a sin committed in cold blood. It's not a sin where somebody says, well, you know what? I just think I'm going to rebel against the way of God and I'm going to take drugs and destroy myself. That's not what's going on. You've got a person who has a bent towards sin. We all do. We're born sinners. A person with a bent towards sin who's also pressed and pressured and pushed by their very physiology to go in a particular direction. Now, see, we don't always recognize that, which is why we become moralistic scolds, pointing the finger at people. But God, God recognizes that. Listen to Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Do you see that? He remembers that we are dust. And so in our moral struggles, we are also battling the vulnerability that comes from being physical beings in a world that shares in that original fall. And we are, as such beings, weak and tempted and tried in ways that, well, sometimes we don't even understand ourselves. And certainly we don't understand in the lives of other people. Now, in all this, I'm not suggesting that moral issues are not moral issues. I'm not saying that whatever we do was caused by you know, our physiology. I'm not doing that. There's some people who practically go there. They talk about brain chemistry as if it's, as if it's some fate that you submit to. That's not the case at all. But certainly, we are dealing with things that are difficult, difficult to overcome. Let's call it a spectrum of accountability. I think the best way to think about it is as a spectrum. So, on one side, you have no responsibility and pure vulnerability, okay? You, you simply are not capable of, of changing your behavior. And I think the best example of this wouldn't be human beings, it'd be animals who have 
no moral responsibility whatsoever. But in some extreme instances, you might find human beings that edge up in that direction. Then on the other side, you have total responsibility and you have pure rebellion, cold-hearted sin that is committed for no other reason than to commit sin. Here, the best example would be the demonic. You may have some human beings who edge up in that direction, but demonic sin is sin committed without any accompanying weakness or ignorance, but with a full intentionality. So those are the two extremes. Where do human sins generally fall? Somewhere in between, right? Somewhere in between. And here's the thing. You and I, you and I are not fit to be judges of where anybody happens to fall along the spectrum. In other words, we are not qualified to say, oh, well, Here's the amount of guilt this person bears before God. As if we know their temptations and their struggles and their background and their problem, the compulsions, we don't know all that. Nor do we know what level of of sin might be working because sometimes even innocent behaviors can be sinful. We can't see inside their hearts. We can't even see inside our own hearts so many times. So are we good judges of where people fall along that spectrum? The answer is no. So we're instructed in Scripture to not judge others. Not only because we ourselves are sinners, and if we start holding up, holding people to certain standards, well, it works toward us too. So we're not to be judgmental toward other people for that reason, but also and especially because we cannot see in their hearts and know what they're dealing with. Some person might be a fine, upstanding citizen, but given all their life experiences and the things that they deal with, it's no great moral achievement that they're a fine, upstanding citizen. On the other hand, you might have some people who struggle with drug addiction and struggle with other life dysfunctions, and given where they've come from, you think, you know what, they're, they're making progress. But we can't judge that because we can't see, all right? Now, here's the point I want to get to in all of this, all right? How can I put it? I want to put it right. Appraisals of an individual's guilt or innocence, however we appraise their guilt or innocence, I mean, we can't, we can't read into their hearts, but we understand everything's on a spectrum, Okay? So appraisals of an individual's guilt or innocence has no bearing on appraisals of what's right and wrong. What I mean is this. My opinion about someone's guilt or innocence means nothing when we're talking about whether something is right or wrong. So let me give you some illustrations of what I'm talking about here. I have a friend whose mother, in the days before she died, had terrible dementia. And she 
would burst out in anger using vulgar language and was even abusive in what she would say to the people who were dearest to her and people who were trying to take care of her. And that was really tough. That was tough for the kids to hear and to listen to. But he said he knew and he reminded himself this wasn't his mom talking. This was the disease talking. It certainly was. And if there's a case of someone who could do something like that and be absolutely innocent, pure vulnerability, that is, no responsibility, that's getting pretty close. Maybe that's there. But here's the thing. It's still not a good thing to abuse people, to use vulgar language, to attack those who are trying to help you, right? We hold, we'd hold somebody like that innocent, but we're not saying that behavior's good. Many years ago, there was a man named Robert in my church. He was a young man. He was, he was a really likable guy, kind of a wry sense of humor. One day, Robert, this committed Christian, this devoted church member, one day, Robert shows up in New Orleans and steals a car. Well, what happened there? Well, that was back in the day when they spoke of manic depressive illness. The terms change, but you know what I'm talking about. And Robert decided he'd stop taking his medication. Well, all seemed fine at first. In fact, all seemed really good. He had this euphoria come over him. But the euphoria escalated into this delusion, and he ends up behaving in a way that was crazy. Now, where does Robert fall on that spectrum? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Clearly, it's not pure rebellion against God, but I don't know, want to say that he had no responsibility. After all, he decided to stop taking his medication. There may be other factors. There. I don't know where it falls. But here's the thing, wherever it falls, it's still not good to steal cars, right? You still don't go steal cars. That's still wrong. Appraisals of Robert's guilt or innocence have nothing to do with appraising whether what he did was right or wrong. That's so important to see. So when somebody... Somebody is anxious, somebody is depressed, and they begin using drugs, or perhaps there are other behaviors that are involved. Who's to judge? We don't know what they're dealing with, and, and, and you know we want to be cautious about judging. But that doesn't mean using the drugs is right. It doesn't mean the other behaviors are right. Someone can be so overtaken by depression and it, become, it becomes not just a psychological but a medical problem, they can sink so low in depression they could take their own life. And I think we can all see how someone could be in that place, and the last thing we'd ever want to do is to condemn them for that because we understand you can reach a place where you just don't see any other way, and you're overwhelmed. Certainly, certainly we all see that. But does anyone think taking your own life is a good thing? A child is sexually abused. And when that child grows up, 
chances are very good they'll assault their own central nervous system with drugs and alcohol to cope with that. It's also statistically the case they are far more likely to abuse a child themselves having been abused. Now, how do you sort out the, the moral issue for the individual there? You know what? That might be a discussion for another day, and ultimately I know that none of us are qualified, but surely all of us understand that sexually abusing a child is a horrible thing, right? So how we judge, or wrong term, how we evaluate guilt or innocence of a particular individual has no bearing on what we judge to be right or wrong. What it does is it reminds us to be merciful and understanding and tolerant. It does not tell us to become relativists, where we say, well, you know, people really struggle with this and they battle with this, and then we say, well, you know, it's, it's okay. They didn't mean to. And, and we start throwing all the moral standards out the window. No, we keep the moral standards, but we also show mercy, understanding, and tolerance. Do you see where I'm trying to get with this? So we understand that people are vexed. We're all vexed with weaknesses of various kinds. So how does, this, how does this all play out for us? I, I need to land this thing. Where am I going to land it? Well, first, if you are among the convinced, that is, you believe the Bible, you believe the moral teachings of the Bible, and you believe that our world has lost its ever-loving mind. I mean, you, you see what's being recommended out in the world, and it's crazy. Okay, if you're in that place, then, then when we think in these terms, we need to hold to those true convictions if they are true, but let's also show a little humility. Let's also show a little humility. Let's remember that we really don't know where people are coming from in their heart of hearts. We don't really know what's going on there. And we ourselves are sinners. And so we need to show restraint. We need to avoid being harsh and judgmental toward people. Let's remember Jesus was the friend of sinners. And we need to be friendly to those who see things very differently from us. Now, what about the wavering? In many ways, this series that I'm doing is for what I'm calling the wavering. That is, those who are Christians who are, who are looking at all the behavior and all the assertions out in the world, and they're beginning to wonder, is it really the case that the Bible teaches this? This is particularly true in sexual ethics. It is so pervasive, so constant. The, the whole ethic of the sexual revolution is, is in our face unrelentingly, and therefore, it's very difficult for us to keep that at a distance. It's, it's much, it, there's a temptation to sort of take on some of it and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's okay. And you see this happening throughout the church. And we'll, I'll talk more about it in the future. 
But the problem is once you do that and you say, you know what, maybe the church is wrong on this, but I'm, I'm still a Christian. I still believe the Bible. But see, you're having to make so many adjustments at that point. It's, just, it's like you're dropping a ball of yarn. You're going you're to lose it. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep unraveling on you. So what about the wavering? If that's where you are, I think it's important to remember that our motives have to be the Lord first. Jesus said that. We need to be suspicious of ourselves. Think back to the garden. The serpent comes to Eve and said, did God really say? Are you serious? God really said that? It's so hard. It's so narrow. And it's so tempting for us. Does the Bible really teach that? Maybe, maybe if I go back, I can, I can reinterpret things to make it fit. A lot of people are doing that. But think about Jesus. Jesus was the friend of sinners, but there was no compromise. No compromise there. So I'll give you an example. He talks about adultery, and he says it's not just the act, it's what's in the heart. What's more, he says it's so serious the sin of adultery and lust in the heart. It is so serious that if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, lop it off, throw it away. Better to do that than to burn in hell forever. That's Jesus who said that. Think about that a moment. Jesus said that. Now, that means a lot of things, but at the very least, it means this, that to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, we sometimes have to be severe with ourselves. That's what that image of self-mutilation is all about. Everybody knows it's not literal. But and that's what it's about. We have to be severe with ourselves. Sometimes, the way God has set out before us is hard. Of course it's hard. It's hard because I'm a sinner, because I am vulnerable and weak. I live in a fallen world. Of course it's hard. So don't think, don't think that, that you've made a new discovery and think, oh, well, Christianity can't be this hard. No, actually, it can't be that hard. Jesus said, you got to take up your cross and follow me. Cross is an implement of death. So if the convinced need to be humble and gracious and understanding and tolerant toward others, the wavering need to get a backbone, show some courage to stand with Jesus Christ. And then finally, what if you're struggling? As a lot of us do. I mean, all of us do. I mean, all of us, right? But, but what if you're really struggling to where you don't have peace, where where you know what's right, but you don't do it, and you want to do it, but you seem too weak to do it, and you don't understand what's going on, and, and you know it's your sin, but, but maybe there are lots of factors in play, and you're stuck, and you don't know what to do. You know, there are lots of things to say about that, but the most basic, the fundamental that I must say, that I want to say right now is this. You must not give up hope. There is a redemption to come, the redemption of our bodies. 
And holding on to hope, which is the same thing as holding on to Jesus Christ, means not, not falling in love with your chains, not making peace with your chains, never saying this bondage is good and okay, or even to be celebrated when it is not. Jesus will not forsake you or fail you. There's a lot more that needs to be said, but I can't say it this morning. The main thing is don't give up hope. Jesus is truly your Savior. He truly is. I've gone too long. I'm putting the, the folks transitioning the room in a bind right now. I want to pray, and then we're just going to close this service. Lord, Thank you for your grace, the grace you show through Jesus Christ to each one of us. Lord, we often don't understand ourselves. We're beset by weaknesses, and we are pushed and pulled by, by sin, and we don't understand ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. Empower us. Help us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be gracious to others, but we also pray you'd help us to stand for you. And Lord, for those who struggle, who struggle, Lord, in their lives, may you lead them to the help that they seek. May you help them, God, to continue on. Give them hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. And Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us. Amen.